Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Pastor Steve Wilkins entitled Calvinism in the South from the Word MP3 collection on Canon Plus. As we engage in the battle to restore our culture, and I, by the way, I think that's the way we need to think. It's not a matter of preserving uh, the culture anymore. It only exists in, in pockets, it seems to me now. It is in tatters because of the revolution. But it is vital as we seek to restore our culture that we never lose sight of what is at the bottom of the conflict. Remember that the root of the English word culture is the Latin cultus, which means um, the worship of God. It reminds us of the foundation of culture, which is so often forgotten in our own day. Culture implies a common way of life, common standards, a common worldview, if you will. But this commonality is founded ultimately not upon economic status or race or nationality, but as our word indicates, common faith or common worship. Uh, Roman Catholic theologian Christopher, uh, historian rather, Christopher Dawson puts it this way. He says it is clear that a common way of life involves a common view of life, common standards of behavior and common standards of value. And consequently, a culture is a spiritual community which owes its unity to common beliefs and common ways of thought far more than to any unanimity of physical type. Therefore, from the beginning, the social way of life, which is culture, has been deliberately ordered and directed in accordance with the higher laws of life, which are religion. Now, I think that's exactly right on. The battle, in other words, is not primarily political, but theological. It's a religious war, and we need to realize that that's where, that's where we are. Abraham Kuyper, the prime minister of the Netherlands in the early part of this century, who was also a newspaper man, an educator, and theologian, and he was probably a good plumber as well, uh, in the early part of this century, he put it similarly, though, though far more succinctly. He said this, culture is religion externalized. And that's, that's a great definition. The most important factor in the formation of a culture is the predominant faith of the people. The foundation of Western culture is Christianity. And in this country, of course, it is Protestant Christianity of the Reformation type. This is the central issue in the preservation and restoration of a culture. The culture that used to be dominant in this country was, of course, biblical, was, was the fruit of biblical Calvinism. And the 19th century departure from this faith in the North and in the West meant that for all practical purposes, the South became the last bastion of the old faith and culture. Uh, and again, uh, we're speaking generally. Uh, you, you, I hope understand that um, that uh, that doesn't mean that all Southerners were very faithful and godly Calvinistic Christians. That's not true by a long shot. And I'm, I'm familiar. I know. I know that. I live there. <laughs> I understand. But um, generally speaking, this was the case. What was what used to exist at, at certain points in our past nationwide only now began to be localized in the South. But uh, and the commitment, uh, indeed, as I said, I think the last hour, the more the North began to stray the, from the old past, the more the South determined to hang on to those things. But the commitment to Calvinism was far more than just reactionary. It was rooted in the faithful labors of the ministers who were devoted to the Reformed faith. And again, I want to I want to point once again to the importance of the preaching of the word and the church and the ministry of the church. That is always the key every time when you look at 
Look at history. At the beginning of the 19th century, the South had lost the orthodoxy that had, that had been present in the uh, first Great Awakening, and it could have been characterized as, the, as one of the most unchurched sections of the country. Only one Southerner in ten was a church member at, in uh, 1800. But as the 19th century progressed, by the year 1830, uh, the South had become the most strongly evangelical section of the country. It had become the Bible Belt in 30 years. The religious skepticism never really found a fertile uh, ground in the South like it did in uh, parts of the North. Even the prominent Southerners who were skeptics and had, had, a, had an affinity to the rationalism of Europe had very little influence on the population at large. For example, people often point to Thomas Jefferson, and, and I believe that it is, um, I believe it's proper to refer to him as a Unitarian, uh, technically, not, not, uh, not as he's often referred to as a deist. But he was a Unitarian, but he was infatuated with the rationalism of Europe. But that particular aspect of Jefferson never, uh, basically, when it became known, people paid very little attention to it, uh, after he was out of office. He, um, Jefferson, uh, uh, Richard Weaver, Southern uh, historian, said that uh, though Jefferson's doctrine of states' rights and his agrarianism were cherished, his religious liberalism was just simply ignored. After his death, his influence waned so rapidly that within a few years, the Presbyterians were able to force the resignation of an atheistic professor who, was, who had been brought in by Jefferson to the University of Virginia. Jefferson wanted the University of Virginia to be the citadel of, of uh, the new thought, the unfettered thought. And... He brought in this atheistic professor, and after Jefferson's death, the Presbyterians uh, threw him out. A similar incident occurred in South Carolina, where the Christians forced the resignation of the president of the University of South Carolina, Thomas Cooper, because he questioned the authority of the Pentateuch. And so he was uh, relieved of his responsibilities for that reason. The same thing happened to Horace Holly, who was the president of Transylvania University in Kentucky. The Second Great Awakening, you see, was not especially noted for its orthodoxy in the Midwest and in the North and Northeast, and even in some sections, of course, of the Upper South, Kentucky, and sections of Tennessee, but it took on a different character in the South as a whole. Charles Finney's humanistic revivalism, which dominated the Midwest and the Northeast, uh, never really found ready reception in the South at large. Southern Christian leaders were of a different sort theologically. Men like Daniel Baker, uh, James Henley Thornwell, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, Robert Louis Dadney, John Holt Rice, Thomas Peck, and Moses Drury Hogue. These and many, many other men, very orthodox men and faithful men, they kept the reins of, on the, of the Southern Revival and by their instruction and expository preaching prevented the movement from, being, from moving in the unscriptural directions that, uh, and, and embracing unscriptural practices like very often uh, dominated the revival in the North. Finney's view of revival never found widespread acceptance in the South. Because of the instruction that had been given, men understood that true revivals are God-sent, not man-produced, as Finney and his followers insisted. Revivals could not be planned. They couldn't be scheduled, nor could they be prolonged by artificial means. They could only be gratefully received and rejoiced over because it was a sovereign work of God, God blessing his word, in a way that was, in a way, unexpected and unpredictable. Those, these two contrasting views of revival, however, are not just to be dismissed as a kind of an insignificant uh, um, dispute over practice. Uh, it was not that. It was a, it's a very significant difference. 
You see, one view, the northern view, focuses upon man's ability to manipulate God and thus produce reform by his own efforts. The other insists upon man's utter dependence upon God and faithfully uh, and, and forces you faithfully to adhere to his word, recognizing that nothing can be accomplished apart from his blessing. These two contrasting perspectives would bear quite different fruit in the respective regions. Dependence upon God and strict adherence to God's means as set forth in his word became dominantly the characteristic of Southern Christianity. Political coercion in the name of God became the hallmark of more and more of the North. The orthodoxy of the South contrasted in quite a few other ways uh, than uh, with the North than this, however, and especially when you come to the, to the type of preaching that was present in the regions. The rationalism of Northern Unitarianism with its detached uh, stoic propriety and uh, polite lecture-like quality to the sermons was quite different from the preaching you would hear in the South. And uh, travelers who went through both regions immediately noticed that, kind of, that contrast when they went to church. A writer for the Presbyterian Advocate in 1830 gave this comparison between the preaching he heard in New England and the preaching he heard in the South. He said, there in New England, the preachers write their sermons and read them over to their audience. The style is chaste, argumentative, but wanting in animation. The style in the South is unequal, often incorrect, but animated, vehement, and powerful. Now, which on the whole are more useful, it is difficult to decide. For instruction, the former excel, but for delight, we would listen to the latter. William Plummer, who was a pastor for many years at First Presbyterian Church at Richmond, Virginia, was replaced when he departed to another congregation by a northerner. The northern replacement, we are told, had a had good and highly cultivated mind, and his sermons instructed and pleased. But Moses Hogue, who was a student in Richmond at that time, just he didn't he wasn't criticizing the preacher so much, but he just said he wrote to a fellow friend of his. He said they are not southern sermons. He said there are no burst of passion, no involuntary emotion, no sudden and splendid inspiration, bearing a man away from his manuscript and from his commonplaces as in a chariot of fire. Yankees, Hogue said, seem to say good things because they've studied them. Southern men say good things because they can't help it. <laughs> Just kind of lose control. You know? Now, a lot of this can be uh, put to the uh, charge of Celtic blood. But that's not the only reason for the animation. There was a true, well, there was a view of preaching that, that uh, used to prevail in this country. They, these men believed that they were dying men preaching to dying men. They were setting forth matters of life and death. It's essential. You've got to know the word. You don't live by bread alone. You live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You, you live by his word. And you simply, if you understand that, you can't view preaching as if it's just a lecture about some business that doesn't have a great deal of impact on anybody. You can't do it. Uh, you can't be detached and professional when you're dealing with truths that have to do with eternity and life and death here and now. The passion of these men, though, often made Northerners feel out of place. That was unusual to them. The truth of God so gripped their souls that it could not be spoken as if it was just bare statistics or a report of some business that had been carried out in a foreign land. Moses Hogue, having, having listened to a number of northern sermons, uh, longed for the old fire of southern preachers. And in the same letter that I quoted from previously, he went on to say to his friend that he really wished he could hear Dr. Plummer preach again. Listen to what he said. 
He said, I am hungry to hear him roar once more. I want to see his eyes glare and his hair stand up on end. It will refresh me to hear, see him foam at the mouth again. <laughs> I dare say that would be something rarely seen in New England. Uh, the sermons in the South were not dry, abstract disquisitions. One um, contemporary observer noted that northern sermons were calculated to flatter the intellect. intellect. Southern sermons sought to change the heart. And it's not that Southerners ignored the intellect. They didn't, but they realized that unless a man's heart is changed, he will ignore whatever his mind, even what his mind is convinced, is true. One historian said this, Every sermon, whether Presbyterian, Methodist, or Baptist, preached both doctrines and duties and was addressed not only to the understanding but to the hearts and consciences of the congregation. The preaching of the word was viewed as the chief means by which men are changed. Now, that's important. In other words, that means we did not believe that legislation was the chief means of reform. We did not believe that social movements were the chief means of change. Rather, the belief was the truth of God proclaimed faithfully to the consciences and hearts of men was the chief instrument in bringing reformation. And reform always begins within man by grace, not outside of man by force. There's a different perspective. It's not a matter of forcing a man by legislation or some kind of external pressure to do what he ought to do. It's a matter of preaching and seeing the spirit change a man so that he wants to do what he ought to do. In the South, the belief predominantly was that the Bible was the very word of God written. It was infallible, inspired. It was, the, it was authoritative in all areas of life and thought. And if one wanted to hear the latest philosophies, one would be compelled to stay away from worship in the South. The content of the sermons was overwhelmingly biblical. Benjamin Morgan Palmer, who was the longtime pastor of First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans, he echoed the widely accepted notion that the minister is a messenger from God, whose duty, Palmer said, was to speak the word that is put into his mouth. That is, the job of the minister is not to tell us of his latest dreams or his imaginations or his opinions of world events or, or to display his grasp of the current issue. He has but one job, Palmer said. He has to expound and apply the word of God, the word that God has given us. His sole care, Palmer said, must be to inquire what God the Lord will, will say. He, ha he is to study God's book, to expound its doctrines, to enforce its precepts, to urge its motives, to pr present its promises, to recite its warnings, to declare its judgments. Your purpose is, is not to sit there and tell us, you know, what you dreamed about or what you thought you, you know, some experience. Tell us what the book says so we can live. We need the words of life. And that's the job of the preacher that uh, historically, of course, that's not a peculiarly southern view. That's a historically Christian view. Southern ministers spent their energies, therefore, in explaining and applying the great truths of the scriptures, the sovereignty of God, the depravity of man, the divine election of grace, the atoning death of Christ, the call to repentance, and to justification by faith. The doctrines palatable in the north, however, were quite different than those received in the south. The old Calvinism, which proclaimed a sovereign, majestic God who ruled over all and gave mercy to whom he pleased, was an anathema by now in the north where the sovereign God had been replaced by the sovereign sinless man, as I mentioned. 
The biblical teaching of human depravity, which gives the lie to humanism old and new, was equally offensive to the modern northern sensibilities. Man was basically good, they believed. Sin, so-called, was the consequence of inadequate education and unseemly surroundings, not some defect within man himself. So again, let me repeat what I said last night. You see, man's problem in this view is not to be seen as located inside him, but outside of him. Man is not saved, therefore, by grace, but man is saved by social and political reform or education or something else. These views, as we now know, produced quite different political sentiments in the two regions as well. In the South, being influenced more and more by the Orthodox theology, they believed that God was sovereign, that he alone possessed unlimited authority, and that he alone could be trusted with such authority since he was spotlessly holy, just, and good. No man can be entrusted with that kind of authority. No, no government can be entrusted with that kind of authority. They believed that God had, had ordained all human institutions with, with strictly limited authority so that if society was to prosper, each institution, family, church, or state, must abide within the limitations set forth by God. That's why constitutions were so important when it came to political uh, structure and government. Prominent Southern Baptist Henry Keeling represented the Southern view when he taught that both magistrates and citizens were under an obligation to carry out their political duties in accordance with those laws of eternal righteousness which God has given to regulate our individual and social deportment. All areas of life were under God's sovereign authority. And thus another uh, Southerner, Thomas Smythe, who was, who was, I believe, a Presbyterian, Thomas Smythe and others, stated that Christianity was the grand requisite in civil government. Liberty and justice, in other words, are impossible apart from biblical faith. And further, of course, the South believed that man was basically sinful, not basically good. Thus, he was in need of the grace of God, not some kind of um, program. Salvation was achieved by man's efforts, not by, sorry, not by man's efforts, but was mercifully and freely given by God on the basis of Christ's work in the place of sinners. And thus, the solutions to men's problems did not lie in political legislation or in the wisdom of men or the wisdom of the population, but in the gospel of Christ. Let me quote again Thomas Smythe. He said, It is not by the wisdom of statesmen and legislators. It is not by civil institutions, by the checks and balances of the powers of government, by laws and courts, by armies and navies, that the peace and order and happiness of mankind can be secured and crime and suffering banished from the world. The true and only panacea for all social and moral ills, the only palladium of all social and political blessings, and the only guarantee for honesty, industry, and prosperity is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Well, there it is. I think that's the truth. And that was the message, remember, of the old, old Puritans. Southerners had little confidence in people, and especially politicians, who are often people too, I guess. Huh? Um, and thus, they stood horrified over the increasingly democratic tendencies that were spreading throughout the North. James Henley Thornwell, the great preacher and theologian uh, from South Carolina, decried democracy in the 1854, uh, in 1854 by saying, it is the deification of the people, and was only one more indication of the tendency present in this country to look to man rather than to God for the solution to our problems. You see, again, his point, we're looking to 
when you start promoting democracy and saying that the majority rules, you're simply deifying the voice of the people, the majority. And that's another indication to look to man rather than to God. Thorne will continue. Listen to this. The people are frequently represented as the source of all political power and rights, the very fountainhead of sovereignty. A supremacy is ascribed to their will, which he who reads the Bible and recognizes a God that has domination over the children of men must feel to be shocking. They are really treated as a species of deity upon earth. Absolutely. You see, in Thornwell's view, the role of the government was not to do the will of the people, but to do what was right. The will of the people, he said, should be done only when the people will what it will what is right. And then, primarily not because they will it, but because it is right. <laughs> eh, eh, that makes sense. The insistence that the will of the people be followed, according to Thornwell, only pointed to a dangerous change in the nature and function of government from a representative system to a pure democracy. And that is what is important. You see, we had, really what we have here is a democratic republic. In other words, we choose our leaders. But we do not have a pure democracy in here. In other words, you don't vote on every, on every piece of legislation that comes up in Washington, D.C. A pure democracy would be putting every piece of legislation before a popular vote. We don't do that. We have a representative system, but we appeal to pure democracy over and over again so that we are taught that it is the majority that rules. And in practically speaking, I think with the polling, we, we are moving more and more into a pure democracy with the form still of a representative Republican government. It's, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation. Southerners lamented the manner in which the 4th of July was celebrated for this reason. They, they were pretty upset by the way that that holiday evolved. Uh, not to say that it shouldn't be observed. It, it wasn't that so much, but how it was observed with all the patriotic speeches praising America and talking about how great we were and how much we had accomplished and so forth. Southern just said, that's, that's, you know, we're really going in the wrong direction here. And so throughout the South, for many, many years, the 4th of July was celebrated with special services of Thanksgiving in the churches. And that only recently uh, began to fall out. And now you get the same kind of, yah, yah, ray, 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 we're great, we're great kind of stuff. And it was really uncomfortable for people who said, you know, we, we don't need to forget that we are really nobody apart from God's blessing. And it's not, we're not great because we're Americans. If we have any greatness, it's because God has blessed us and that is all. And we need to remember that. The North, by contrast, rejecting the doctrine of man's depravity, believed that the chief need of man was political and social reform, precisely the sort of reform that the South opposed. Reform, however, became the true religion of the North. Prison reform, the abolition of capital punishment, the peace movement, the socialistic experiments, the feminist movement, the government school movement, the temperance movement, the movement to reform working conditions, and of course, the abolition movement. The North, the Southerner said, was movement mad. New England, especially, had become the land of isms, they said. Perfectionism, abolitionism, pacifism, feminism, Fanny Wrightism, socialism, communism, and more heresies and self-righteous humbug than you can shake a cane at. They said that they were only seeking to persuade. But if persuasion didn't work, and it seldom did, they were more than willing to resort to political force and governmental force. Salvation would come whether you liked it or not. You were going to be saved whether you wanted to be saved or not. The fact that the Constitution forbade the federal government to act in these ways made little difference to the promoters of progress. 
If the literal language of the Constitution didn't allow it, they said, the spirit of the Constitution does allow it. You see, that kind of logic, that kind of statement is still heard today. People continue to appeal to the spirit or the, in legal terms, the penumbra of the uh, Constitution, which means the uh, aura that is around the Constitution, uh, a, a tad uh, amorphous for my blood, but uh, everyone seems to go along with this stuff now, where if it's not literally written down, it must be there because we can feel it to be true. Again, the emphasis not upon the objective, but upon the subjective, not upon what is revealed, but what is experienced or felt. That is going into political. You see, the political interpretation of the Constitution fell under the same kind of problem. Well, these men who had for some time then refused to interpret the Bible faithfully in accordance with its original intent saw nothing wrong at all with interpreting the Constitution in the same way. I mean, after all, if you can ignore what the Bible says and it's in its original meaning, why can't you ignore what a man-made document, the Constitution, originally meant? You can reinterpret the Constitution. You, if you can reinterpret the Bible, why can't you reinterpret the Constitution? It's no big deal. And that's why, again, you see, if you're upset about the way the Supreme Court handles the Constitution or our Congress ignores the Constitution, you have to go back and say, well, look, you know where they learned to do that? They learned to do that in the church, where the church ignores the Bible. And it doesn't deal with the Bible faithfully, plays around with it, makes it, you know, views it like a nose of wax and, and shapes it any way they please. That's where they learn that stuff. And that's what that's what was happening. The growth of Unitarianism in the North also would have an impact on, in the political sphere. Clearly, the departure from historic Christianity would cause a growth in the faith in a faith in man and his goodness, which gave much favor to a radically democratic form of government. But here, I want to focus upon the rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity. Remember, Unitarianism, Transcendentalism rejected the Trinity. And uh, that has very important political ramifications. It's only within God himself, as again I mentioned, I think, last night, that we find the solution to that ancient question of the one and the many, which is ultimate, and you find out in God they're equally ultimate. In other words, they're not contradictory. You can have both unity and diversity if you have a Christian order. Otherwise, you can't. Both unity and diversity are equally ultimate in God, and therefore in Christian cultures, there's always been a place for a unity, a oneness structure and form, and a place for manyness, individual, uh, lawful individualism and diversity. Only in the triune God do we find unity that doesn't annihilate legitimate diversity and vice versa. Only in him and in his covenant can there be real unity that preserves legitimate diversity. And they don't threaten each other. So the lawful diversity doesn't destroy the unity. The unity doesn't destroy the lawful diversity. But you see, that's a Christian political concept. That's a, trin a Trinitarian political concept specifically. Only in Christian culture can you have, therefore, unity and diversity coexisting together. Unity and freedom. In imitation of the triune God, there is a unity of faith and purpose, and yet there is no demand for uniformity of personality. There is a unity without the assimilation of the individual into the whole. In Unitarian and atheistic cultures, you find exactly the opposite. There is usually a demand for a stifling, egalitarian conformity in order to preserve unity. Unitarianism views God not as a person, but as an impersonal force. There is and can be no love in a Unitarian God. No love in God himself. You see what I'm saying? He has no one to love. Since he is, his monism makes it impossible for him to love himself. 
Thus, the culture reflecting this view of God becomes a cruel and heartless culture. In, in a Unitarian God, there's no love. There's force. There's power. But there's no love. Only in the Trinity can there be love with power. And in fact, holiness and power and love are coexistent and they don't wipe out each other. But in a Unitarian God, you cannot have them. So a culture that refuses to recognize the loving Trinity seeks unity by force. Totalitarianism, statist egalitarianism, and thus tends to be characterized by harshness, bitterness, and cruelty. And I just refer you to the Islamic cultures or the communistic cultures that are, and totalitarian governments, which, which are this way and always have been that way and always will be that way. That's the way it is. Now, assuming this has um, some validity, this line of argument has validity, that does give us some additional insight as to why the Unitarians in the North hated and sought to overthrow by force the Old South, where this Trinitarian principle of unity and diversity was honored. Unbelievers demand conformity in faith. They are, they are threatened and frightened by divergent beliefs, even though they, pro, they constantly protest con, uh, contrary to that. And thus, sooner or later, they resort to force to bring about a pseudo-unity. True unity is founded not upon impersonal or bureaucratic force, but upon the love and grace and personableness of the triune God. Where this is lacking, there cannot be freedom and peace or prosperity. There simply cannot be. Now, this orthodoxy which pervaded the South prior to the war was the reason for the political views which dominated the region as well. The concepts of limited constitutional government, a union made of free and independent states. See it? A union, we have a un unity, but it doesn't destroy the, the political integrity of the individual states. The states created the union, and the states preserve all authority that they do not delegate expressly to the federal government that they created. The federal government is creature, not creator. The states retain their political sovereignty in that sense. That is a covenantal view of government. Now, the old idea that Lincoln picked up was Unitarian, atheistic view of government, that the nation can't be divided. What are you talking about? You, you rejected Trinitarian politics at that point. The idea that there is the nation is one great mass that cannot suffer division. That's Unitarianism expressed in political form. That's not Trinitarianism. That's atheism, not Christianity. And the modern view that most Christians now have is a Unitarian atheistic view of politics, not a Trinitarian historic Christian view of politics and, and, uh, and governmental structure. So uh, I, I just point that out just to get you to thinking along these lines. It's a very, very important concept, it seems to me, in trying to understand these things. Anyway, the idea of a limited constitutional government, a union made up of free and independent states, a hearty distrust of democracy, a strict adherence to the Constitution, the doctrine of the separation of powers, the rules of justice, all of these distinctives and many more which distinguished our nation at its founding are rooted in Trinitarian Christianity and in teaching them submission to authority. i got to read you this excerpt from Ariel Dadney. He's writing to a friend of his about his youngest son, Lewis, and about the travail that Lewis was having in being given the switch. You know the switch? Now, Lewis is getting that. He's getting trained. And Dabney is writing to one of his preacher friends. He says this, Lewis is in rather a transition state. Having arrived at the dignity of breeches and jacket, 
His mama seems rather to have waked up to the fact that he was big enough to stand the switch. And consequently, his back right often comes to grief from his propensity to tell fibs and be impudent. He wears frequently a very grave face as though somehow this this world was not turning up, was turning up a very different one from what he had flattered himself. I think the question of whether he can get his own consent to come fully under the yoke of authority is still under debate in his mind. But it is very clear to him that the switch is too bad to stand, whereon his mind undergoes a good deal of perplexity. (laughs) Well, the third thing that was true of the culture was generosity and hospitality. Southerner, often from his isolated or semi-isolated condition, fairly craved visitors, both strangers as well as family and friends. And it was the view that if you were privileged to keep an honorable traveler, his visit was regarded as a great benefit to your house. And your children benefit, everybody benefited. And it was the equivalent of entertaining strangers unawares. Most Southerners never had much, but the worthy man or stranger or friend was welcome to a portion, a portion of it. The general theological consensus that existed in the South gave rise to a prevalent tolerance uh, and respect being given to sincere men of different communions, different denominations. But, you see, convictions were held very strongly. Uh, but for those who were sincerely faithful, judgment of charity was, was often, it would often prevail. One, uh, one writer said that you, you could illustrate the difference between the northern attitude and the southern attitude by these two ways. He said, in the north you hear things like this. Uh, you worship God in your way, and I'll worship God in mine. Uh, let's just go our own ways. He said, but in the South, you hear this. You worship God in your way, and we'll worship God in his. They loved each other, but they held their convictions very strongly. Men learned the importance of minding their own business, though. Uh, the, the officious and tyrannical reformist busybody attitude that was often prevalent in New England was not tolerated in the South. Men sought the, to be scriptural and neighborly uh, in a scriptural and neighborly way to see after each other. But they knew that there were certain things that are none of your business and you'd best resist the temptation to try to run other people's lives for them. Fourthly, there was household independence, personal responsibility. There, these were people who did not expect others to take care of them, nor would they have allowed such a thing as long as they had the capacity for caring for themselves. God expected each to use his strength and gifts to provide for himself and his own. And the man who refused to provide for his household was worse than an infidel. Men preferred to paddle their own canoe. In other words, the irresponsible uh, welfare mentality didn't exist. And then the fifth thing that was true was honesty and integrity. You always have scoundrels any place you go. But in general, in the South, the habits of fair dealings were ingrained from both pulpit and hearthstone. Your word and your good name were most important. Nothing was more despised than a swindler and a thief, and nothing was more scorned than a man who would sell principle for advantage. They were willing to stand for the right, even at the price of their popularity, and even if it had very little chance of success. R.L. Dabney once said, it is only the atheist who adopts success as the criterion for right. And that needs to be remembered. There was a strong sense of honor and a desire to maintain a good name as well as defend your friends. Now, this had a negative effect in making Southerners sometimes zealous to vindicate their honor by resorting to dueling. Dueling was quite uh, prevalent in the South. The duel was not an uncommon thing, and I am not going to justify it, but it has to be confessed like Thomas Carey Johnson admitted. He said, this practice has the undeniable tendency to make men more careful in their intercourse with each other. (laughs) And 
that you might have heard of Kennesaw, Georgia, where the city council there a few years ago passed an ordinance requiring every household to be armed. Uh, you had to have a gun in Kennesaw. Now, that had two effects. I went over there uh, to visit, and they were telling me, you know, since the passage of that ordinance, it's been wonderful. They said two things have happened. First, the crime rate went to zero. Uh, burglars said, you know, Kennesaw, we omit, we go to Atlanta and do our robbing, uh, where they don't allow guns. Uh, Kennesaw, the, the crime rate went almost to nothing. And he said the second thing that was a marvelous, he said, this is marvelous. He said, everybody's so nice to each other. <laughs> he said he ran a store on Main Street. And he said he actually saw a, a, a car wreck. Two cars ran into each other. He said both drivers got out apologizing. <laughs> so I'm not an advocate of dueling, but it has its advantages, you know. Um, well, thankfully, there were stronger and more noble motives for courtesy and respect. The Bible teaches that all men are created after God's image, and therefore we're to esteem others better than ourselves. And it is viewed in Christian societies that it's a mark of extreme lack of grace to be discourteous without a cause. The oil of society is courtesy and deference to one another. We are sinners, and if you don't think that it's important to be deferential and courteous, you don't understand what is going on. If you cannot do that, you're asking for a lot of friction, which is what you get in, in places where you don't see this. Courtesy and deference is the oil of society. It lets us get along together smoothly. Sixthly, there was a respect for law and lawful order. Christianity produced both a fierce determination to defend liberty as well as a deep respect for godly law and order. There was a basis for the respect uh, this was the basis for the respect that prevailed in the South for common law, which had been foundational to England's judicial structure. The common law, you see, from a Christian perspective, is based upon the fact that there are principles of justice ultimately established by God himself, which overrule the laws of men and under which all men are subject regardless to who they are, uh, of who they are. No king or any or a legislature can enact a law that supersedes or sets aside the common law. Nor is there any need for kings and legislatures to ratify the common law. It exists, in other words, by God's ordination. That's, that was the Christian view of it. All laws of men must not contradict or contravene this law. Now, this was a heritage of the Reformation. It was part of what was understood to be the chartered rights of Englishmen in the Magna Carta. It was this that, that molded the South's view of tyranny. When the North sought to combine against the South and by a pure majority overthrow the Constitution, the South was duly bound in their own view to defend the old ways. It, they did not view that as rebellion, but but uh, but actually preserving the old order. It was a it was an act of self-defense to preserve the old order that was being attacked. Alexander Stevens, who was the um, vice president of the Confederacy, put it this way. He said, "The real object of those who resorted to secession, as well as those who sustained it, was not to overthrow the government of the United States." but to perpetuate the principles upon which it was founded. The object in quitting the Union was not to destroy, but to save the principles of the Constitution. Robert E. Lee said the same thing. He said, all that the South has ever desired was that the Union, as established by our forefathers, should be preserved, and that the government, as originally organized, should be administered in purity and truth. The, the, the men of the South honestly held that view. They 
most of them, as I mentioned, 90% of the men who fought were not slaveholders. They had no interest in preserving that particular aspect of the society. They, they didn't have any particular interest in it at all. The men of the South, however, were fighting for independence and self-rule. This was a case, uh, this was a cause, in other words, worth defending even against such overwhelming odds as the southern nation would have to face. And this was the view. Some people said, well, that was the view of the leaders after the war. They tried to reconstruct their rationale, and we know all about that. Well, in fact, that was not. This is the view of the common soldier during the war. Let me just quote you from Sam Watkins, who was a private in the, in the 1st Tennessee Maury Gray's regiment. Uh, he stated the issues in a letter this way. We believe in the doctrine of states' rights. They, the North, in the doctrine of centralization. We only fought for our state rights, and they for union and power. The soldiers who died, said Private Watkins, were only trying to protect their homes and families and their property and their constitution and their laws that had been guaranteed to them as a heritage forever by their forefathers. They died for the faith that each state was a separate government as laid down by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of our fathers. That was a common view. And in many, many letters to privates, not the leaders, but the privates, that's exactly the view they stated over and over again. It was well known that we do not fight to conquer anybody. We had no interest in conquering Washington, D.C. You could have it. We didn't want it. What we wanted was the freedom to rule ourselves and to withdraw from a nation if it seemed to be not abiding by the Constitution. And the last thing that was true of this people was that they were a people of holy memory. Practical intelligence and common sense were widespread, of course, but here I'm referring to the fact that they understood the importance of liberty and the dangers of the abstract ideas of statist utopianism. While the North took pains to obliterate the past and rewrite the past, the South refused to forget the past. They remembered the dangers from their grandsires and the, and, the, and the dangers their grandsires faced from a government that tried to control all areas of life and thought. Remember, the vast majority of southern people descended from Scots and Irish and Celtic peoples that had been oppressed by England over and over again and the tyranny of king. And they were not at all happy with people who didn't keep their word like Edward and other kings didn't do over and over again. And so the, there was an ingrained animosity to the idea that, that some government would run, trample over the Constitution and do whatever it pleased because it thought it was a good idea. So they didn't forget that. They remembered what their ancestors had suffered, and they knew the dangers of men who thought they knew what was best for the rest of us. There was an ingrained aversion then to anything that smelled like centralism and hinted at the infringement of basic God-given liberties. And it was this spirit that pervaded the men who fought for the war in the War of Southern Independence and later on. It was this spirit that we have lost so tragically in our day. R.L. Dabney, after the war, was called upon to address the students at Davidson College, which was, is, a, um, is a Presbyterian school in North Carolina. And he, this was in 1868. And he said he, in, the, in his address, he made this statement. A brave people may for a time be overpowered by brute force and be neither dishonored nor destroyed. But if the spirit of independence and honor be lost among the people, this is the death of the common weal. Dread then this degradation of spirit as worse than defeat, worse than subjugation, worse than poverty, worse than hardship, worse than prison, worse than death. And that's the thing that I think we have lost in our day. We have lost this spirit. We've lost what Russell Kirk 
has called the, the cultural continuity. We've lost the faith that holds a culture together. A culture cannot remain if the faith which supports that culture is, is destroyed. And when this is lacking, there's little point in engaging in political tinkering. Politics is not the answer for a man who's lost his soul. And that's where we are. The battle we face will not be won merely by political measures. We are in a battle for the permanent things. Until we realize this, we will never deal the death blow to the revolution. And I believe we must view ourselves as counter-revolutionaries now. The revolution is in place. It, it has been in place quite a while. And the revolutionaries have been running, uh, you know, the hen house up there. Uh, they've been running that a long time. It's not just recently. Uh, the revolution is in place, and we must now seek to dislodge it by all lawful means. The only hope of restoring and retaining liberty, however, is for the people of our land to reject the false gods of humanism, both the radical and the conservative uh, type, and return to the true God and true creator. If we fail to maintain and, and restore his, the historic Christian faith as the centerpiece of cultural reformation, we will be doomed to the same futility that all other humanistic conservative movements have experienced. We will fail as well. And I say justly so. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Pastor Wilkins, available now on Canon Plus. Mm-hmm.